We'd do some box drills, and we'd set up 18-inch uh, boxes and put them so far apart, and then we'd put a switch mat in between. So when the athlete came off one of the boxes, hit the switch mat, and then went to the next box, we'd have a recording of his ground contact time, and then we'd look at it on the other leg on the next series of boxes. That was Dr. Donald Chu speaking on his plyometric methodology, specifically advanced feedback methods in bounding and ground contact time. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. You are listening to episode 73 with Dr. Donald Chu. Uh, many people out there, especially if you're in the world of track and field, plyometrics, if you have been a student of what, the uh, field of sports performance since at least the, the late 1990s, you're probably familiar with uh, Dr. Don Chu's works, uh, the prime uh, landmark of which is jumping into plyometrics, which was probably it wasn't the first book i've ever had on plyometrics that was the the science of jumping i found that in the back of slam magazine that was actually an awesome book uh <laughs> well i guess if you count air alert a book on plyometrics which i guess i would not uh it's kind of borderline <laughs> i guess that was the first one but jumping of science of jumping was second and then the um, jumping into plyometrics was the third one and i i really looked back and forth between uh, don chu's book and then the science of jumping book and kind of seeing comparing contrasting which exercises were they utilizing and and um, it was just really fascinating stuff and so i've always been familiar with uh, dr don chu and who he was and and his interests and those types of things and and really it's interesting i would say in the last year uh I've just been getting and hearing more and more people saying or talking about how Don Chu's high jumpers were so good, like his jumpers were so good back in the 1980s. And he has definitely developed an extensive reputation in the field of uh, not only sport, track and field, but also sports rehabilitation, uh, his doctorate, his uh, doctor of physical therapy. He is also uh, well known in the areas of fitness and conditioning, and he has been credited with bringing plyometric training to the attention of the athletic world through his application of theoretical knowledge 
as well as his practical demonstrations. So uh, for today's episode, we're just going to go pretty heavy into a lot of his training methods and methodology that he was doing primarily in that golden age in the 1980s. And I'll tell you what, I, I love looking back into the past a little bit, what people were doing in the 80s and 90s and these things from a training perspective. And if you look at like the high school state records and in various events, you see so many marks from the 80s and as well as like the 90s. And it, it's crazy because you would say, oh man, well, man, if training has gotten so much better, why aren't uh, athletes jumping farther? Why are these still these high performance marks from the 80s and 90s? And the fact of the matter is, is coaches were doing great stuff back then. They had great training methods back then. There was, um, I think there was maybe a different time with track and field as well in terms of uh, popularity versus other things, but there was people who had great coaching and uh, Dr. Chu was getting a lot out of his athletes back then. And so uh, my big impetus in this was just learning a little bit more about his his theories, some things he was doing. You heard in that intro clip, he was doing some things with the switch mat and bounding, which was awesome. I, I always used it in between hurdles and I'd always thought of, oh, how would I use this in bounding? Like it was always very awkward. I would like have try to have an athlete bound along and put a just jump mat and say, hey, do a contact here. But the way he set up with boxes is a way I would think would work much, much better. A huge improvement on what I was trying to do. And just stuff that athletes can get great feedback from. And and, and I don't want to give away a lot of the episode and, and some of his methods and training and things like that. But I will say there's just a lot of creativity, a lot of practical, uh, practical ideology, especially stuff revolving around ground contact time. And so that's always something I've been passionate about too. Uh, so on the show today, uh, Dr. Chu and I will talk about quantifying and implementing plyometrics. We'll talk jump training. We'll talk some Russian training methods keystone workouts specifically for track and field jumpers but again with application for many sports uh, and much more Uh, one of the uh, little things too i feel like one of the little gems towards the end is when he talks a little bit about hamstring training uh, which i'm always i always love talking that one is because i'm just massively weak there and always looking as to why and how I, i can improve my own hamstrings so dr chu really goes into that a little bit towards the end and uh just a great overall episode on a guy who's really just been a uh, a stalwart of that that I would say early to mid uh, or early practical plyometric training and integration and then in the books and literature that he's added to the field. So uh, we'll get on to the show. Before we do, I uh, just wanted to quickly read a review that was that was left. Again, if you leave us a five-star review and I read it on the air, uh, we'll hook you up with some Simply Faster gear. So this one's by Jay Flood 12 uh, He says, your podcast and information as a whole is top-notch. I have learned and grown as an athlete and coach in the past months listening to you and your guests more than I did during college football. So thanks for that, JFlood12. Uh, go ahead and shoot us an email in uh, the Contact Us section of Just Fly Sports, and we'll get you the coupon code uh, to get you hooked up. So with that said, uh, let's get on to episode 73 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast with Dr. Don Chu. Dr. Don Chu, thanks for being on the show today. It's great to have you here. It's good to be here. Yeah, so just to kick everything off, I'd like to, for those people who might not be familiar with you, I'd like to get your background uh, as well as uh, how you got into coaching. So could you share with us your background in the, the field of training and performance as an athlete and then your journey into coaching? Sure. As an undergraduate in college, I was primarily a football player. I was a free safety and played for people like Daryl Rogers. And uh, when I got to the point where I was 
going to graduate, I thought, well, what am I going to do from this point on? And I thought maybe I'd go and earn a graduate degree in biomechanics. And somebody suggested, why don't I try physical therapy school? So I applied to physical therapy school at Stanford University, and I got in. And uh, I have never regretted making that move. And after I graduated from physical therapy school, Lou Comer, who was the athletic director at Cal State Hayward, offered me a job uh, to come and take care of the athletic injuries and to teach. And so uh, when I was an athlete, I would have considered myself as a, as a uh, track and field second athlete, a uh, long sprinter competing in the 200 and the 400. And when they talked to me about the 400-meter hurdles, uh, that's when I suddenly got tone deaf and uh, decided that I was a football player full-time. But uh, I got into coaching kind of uh, on a uh, interesting uh, sort of circumstances. I listened to a track clinic. My office partner was Jim Santos, and he invited me to a track and field clinic, and I listened to Bernie Wagner talk about Dick Fosbury. And he said that he didn't know and didn't have any idea how Fosbury was successful. And, you know, as the story goes, he Fosbury, uh, well, Oregon State was competing against Fresno State in a dual meet. And Wagner had told Fosbury, either you win the high jump today or you're going to drop this going over the bar backwards stuff and become a Western straddler, a Western roll straddler. And so uh, Fosbury won the meet, and needless to say, he went on and had a lot of success. But at that clinic, he said uh, literally that he had no idea how Fosbury was doing this. And I said, well, that doesn't make any sense. There has to be some answers to this. So I went home, dug out the physics books, and uh, just did a little uh studying and just putting together some ideas and the next week I went back into Jim Santos's office and I said Jim I think I have this high jump thing figured out uh, how about if I coach your athletes for a year and if I don't do a good job just fire me and he said okay and that first year we had a kid named Chris Schneider from Castro Valley High School who became uh, a runner-up to the national championship an all-american in division two and a member of the junior national team. So, uh, you know, that was a pretty good start. And then after that, another set of circumstances led me to the point where I just wanted to recruit a whole bunch of people. And then I went out and I got six high jumpers, six long jumpers, six triple jumpers, and we just became a Division II power in that sport. Yeah, so uh, within the scope of track and field, uh, what uh, I mean, I'm assuming that's what really spurred your interest then in plyometric training and then your writings in that arena. Yeah, it was kind of interesting because at the time I was doing this, uh, you know, the Russians were getting a lot of uh, sort of public attention on their training methods, and their training methods were really quite different from what the United States was involved in in those days. And so I looked at it, and... They seem like very functional exercises. A lot of them were body weight exercises. A lot of them were ballistic exercises. And the, the U.S. athletes just weren't doing those things. So when I looked at those, I started to just make some notes and started categorizing the exercises to see how they were administrating them. 
And uh, this became the basis for my book, uh, the first edition, Jumping into Plyometrics, which I basically just arranged all those exercises in the categories and, and talked about how you would use those exercises and what sorts of skill development uh, would go along with those exercises. So uh, that was really kind of the crux of the whole article of the whole book, and uh, it became the basis or foundation for my conditioning and training programs for my athletes. <laughs> and go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, who, um, so is it, I mean, anybody who does all this stuff before this internet era and smartphone era is always, I mean, it's all, I think it's, I mean, every coach now, it's like you press a button and you can learn something. But who are some of your like contacts and mentors and conduits back in that era to these, what these guys were doing? How did that information, how did you find that information? Well, probably one of the chief contacts was a fellow by the name of Michael Yesus, who was a foreign language professor down at Long Beach State and was interpreting and publishing uh, a series of articles uh, that he put under the title Soviet Sports Review. And those articles really became the basis for what I was doing, and that's where I gained a lot of my information. And then from that point on, it really was a matter of communication and talking with as many of the East European coaches that I could come in contact with, listening to them speak, reading articles that were translated, because I didn't speak Russian nor German. And so a lot of those articles I was able to pull up and uh, in their translated versions, and I did a lot uh, of incorporating those ideas. Yeah, so in, in your incorporation of those ideas, and I'd like to kind of turn things over to a little bit more of the training side, uh, what you're in, obviously you as a track coach and, and jumps coach, what's your approach or, or what has your approach been to training track and field jumpers? I mean, we could talk high jumpers specifically. Obviously, there's nuances, and I'd like to keep things uh, in some generalities for those people in other sports, uh, but your approach to training track and field jumpers and then some things that you we're doing that may have not been common at the time, such as obviously how you're implementing some of those plyometric movements. Sure. One of the things I learned very early on from the Russians, the Russians had an absolute philosophy. We will be stronger than you. And so th with that in mind, we work to maximize uh, the strength levels of our kids to the point where we got some fantastic results and, and really good weightlifting scores out of these kids. And basically, uh, we worked for a preparation period of six weeks where we would stress strength to, to all ends, you know, pushing ourselves in just about every, every way. I used to take my linear jumpers, my long jumpers and triple jumpers, down on the basketball floor and we do split squat walks with 155 pounds and we do 10 times the length of the court and they just pass the bar off between uh, the athletes at each end and so uh, you know with those kinds of efforts that that was just simply one exercise in a series of 10 and so what would happen is these kids were really getting quite a bit stronger than they ever thought they could be I never recruited a kid who came to school who did not improve in their strength testing uh, over a two-year period. And so that was good. And then the plyometrics sort of became the icing on the cake. 
And uh, what I challenged the kids with mainly in plyometrics were not the kinds of things that attract people to the plyometrics, like uh, death jumps. People want to jump off higher and higher boxes. Well, our test was based on, or, or our training was based on, how fast can you be off the ground? How reactive can you be? Not just simply how much force you can absorb at impact and then come out of that. Uh, you know, I, I had an opportunity in the 1988 Olympics to watch uh, the men's uh, triple jump champion, Markov, from Bulgaria. And whenever he hit the, the triple jump runway, people just groaned because he had terrible, terrible technique. And he would virtually come to a stop at the end of each phase. And he would hit the runway so hard that you just cringed to, to watch that. And uh, then he would somehow muster up enough strength to power out of that position and continue on. Now, Markov was probably about a 55, 56-foot triple jumper, which are good marks in those years particularly. But the thing was it took a, a huge toll on his body, and you never heard of him after the 88 Olympics. And, uh, you know, we, would, we didn't try to emulate that. We tried to emulate the best aspects of what I thought would propel a triple jumper to longer distances. And we had guys here in the United States like Larry Livers from San Jose, uh, Willie Banks from UCLA, and people like that that were absolute models on how to be reactive off the runway. And whether they were doing plyometric training, I would only assume that they were. But with my kids, we made sure that we did those and we tried to emulate those guys. And it made it easier for them to conquer those goals. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, yeah, that's that's interesting. I had heard that Markov had blown up. I always knew he was like this big, strong jumper with a very unorthodox and very like muscly technique. And it definitely didn't surprise me to hear that. I mean, it was before my era, era of track and right, field. But he, right. but uh, yeah, you can well, see, see that coming. It was said that Markov could do a single leg squat with 350 pounds. Yeah, I had heard. I'd heard that. Pretty outstanding, Mark. Yeah, I had heard that. Uh, with with the strength training too, you mentioned something interesting. I'd like to actually dig into the strength training a little bit before we maybe turn to plyometrics. But with the the jumps group that you had, you had said that you were doing uh, like lunges across the court with 155, um, and that's a uh, that seems like some serious strength, but also strength endurance. I mean, were you? Um, in terms of like rep ranges and things like that, I mean, was that like a, just a very general physical preparation, like kind of lengthening the fascia and just like, uh, I mean, what was the, what was the approach or how did that fit into the grand scheme? Cause I think that's something that you wouldn't like, if you went to like a USATF clinic now, I mean, you would, you, they probably wouldn't say something like that, but that doesn't mean obviously that it's not extremely effective. I'm just, I'm curious about the methodology behind that there. Yeah, no, the, the, Thinking behind that sort of thing was basically the realization that you're hitting the ground in the, in the jumps. You're hitting the ground with anywhere between five to ten times your body weight. So I would look at a 160-pound triple jumper, and I would say, okay, we're going to take six jumps. You're going to have 18 ground contacts in the space of that 18 jumps. And how much force can you sustain before you actually wind up injuring yourself or reaching a fail point as you know and a fail point to me in the triple jump is dragging the toe and scraping the foot in the middle of a jump 
you know, collapsing on a leg and having to run through the jump, you know, or having a, a bad uh, landing in the step or the hop phases, which uh, just destroy the jump. So in order to, to do those things and, and in order to get out of those things, you have to have a certain amount of sustainability. And so 155 pounds may seem like a lot, but again, that's, that's less than their body weight more than likely. And the ability for them to constantly bear that and switch feet and have some coordination to do that, that's I, what I visioned, envisioned it happening on the runway. And so I, I felt like we were training specifically for those events on the runway. Yeah. What, what were some, um, what were some other specific things you were doing in the weight room? Like, uh, in your kind of battery of getting your jumpers stronger in terms of other prime movements that you were looking to. We did a lot of Olympic lifting. We certainly worked a lot on clean and jerk. We did some snatches and, uh, you know, basically we squatted, we back squatted like crazy. And the idea there again was to provide uh, really maximal efforts. Yeah. What, uh, with, uh, the back squat, especially, and I think this is always an interesting question to ask track coaches. Uh, but in terms of, uh, depth for those guys, uh, were you doing kind of like a 90 degrees, uh, full parallel depth or a mixture of things? Well, we were breaking parallel. We were breaking parallel on all those squats. And the idea is that you go through that range. Now, uh, I'm going to qualify that statement because with the high jumpers, we did a lot of quarter squats because the angle of the knee at, in, in the high jump at takeoff is about 140 degrees. And so if we were squatting at or a little bit beyond 140 degrees, I felt that was fairly transferable to the high jump event itself. Yeah, I've always felt that way as well for high jumpers. I feel like they're not, a lot of them are not natural deep squatters. Uh, it takes, uh, compared to maybe long and triple jumpers' abilities in many, many cases. Right. Well, they're, you know, they're, they tend to have longer, thinner frames. And so they really aren't designed to take some of those high stresses uh, in those deeper positions. So the shallower positions really work better for them. And I had some kids that, you know, we had typically had 750 pound marks in the safety racks, you know, where they were able to quarter squat that much. And certainly that's more than what they needed in order to get themselves off the ground. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it's always amazing how strong those types of athletes can be in a partial compared to their uh, deep squat range relative to, I don't know, say a, say a football player or a shot putter or something like that. Absolutely. Uh, so in terms of, you mentioned plyometrics then, uh, so that being kind of like the cherry on top or something that they, uh, it wasn't as much of the initial emphasis as getting stronger and, and there are other, obviously, I'm sure event specific work and those types of things. Uh, but how did you start to integrate that in as your, your athletes came through your system? Well, the thing was our weight rooms were pretty much, uh, the weight room workouts were pretty much weight room workouts and we stuck, uh, basically with the uh, free weights, the Olympic lifts, and these types of exercises. We did some jumps, particularly if we were in a rainy season. We did a lot of split squat walking, did some split squat jumps, those, those types of things in small confined spaces. But really the bulk of our training came outside, and our technique days were all about bounding, which is an exaggerated form of running as you well know. And so the idea was 
to incorporate as much triple jump type bounding into their workout as possible. So we had some long days where they would do a lot of alternate bounding, combination bounding, single leg bounding, these kinds of things in order to develop sort of a different type of strength, with you, if you will. This was more a reactive neuromuscular strength. So again, we would work a lot on getting off the ground quickly, being able to cycle the leg and having a very fast reaction time off of the surface. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that fast reaction time as well. I've, I've, I feel like that's not monitored enough these days. Like people will see a plyometric and do the plyometric, but they don't really think about the essence of it and, and what, how the ground, the profile of ground contact looks like. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would bark at the, the athletes all the time about the amortization phase and I would liken it to a home loan. And the amortization phase in a home loan is the time it takes for the loan to pay off. And the idea is in track and field, we want that to be the shortest time possible so we get the biggest payoff at the end. And uh, it seemed to make sense to a lot of kids. Yeah, did you, uh, so when you were introducing that, was it, I mean, I think in the coaching community, a lot of times it's kind of like, we're going to push the force time curve to the right and we're starting with more strengthening with more speed. But I've always felt like plyometrics from day one, they should be, at least this is just my opinion, but they should be very fast from day one. Um, is, or at least um, even the profiles of them. Uh, did you? Was there a particular way that you would periodize them or, or how you would look at the ground contacts through the course of the season? Well, we had some uh, switch mats for assessment of ground contact time. So some of the tasks that we would be involved in during the training would actually measure the ground contact times of the athletes. And we'd look for that, and we'd try to get those as close to a tenth of a second as possible. I wanted them to be very much like the sprinters so that their ground contacts were very brief and that they were instantly reacting to the ground. Were you using that even in, like, bounding, like trying to get a bound to land on that and that, that type of contact? Exactly. You know what I would do is I would we would do some box drills, and we'd set up 18-inch uh, boxes and put them – so far apart and then we'd put a switch mat in between so when the athlete came off one of the boxes hit the switch mat and then went to the next box we'd have a recording of his ground contact time and then we'd look at it on the other leg on the next series of boxes oh i, and, li I like that a lot yeah it wasn't science it, it actually <laughs> wasn't pure science but you know as far as a relative standard and a guideline it gave us good data yeah. Oh man, that's awesome. I I used to do. I had a just jump mat when I was a, when I was a full time track coach back at Wilmington College, and I would always put it like between hurdles for hurdle hops. But I had never. I think I had probably messed around with it bounding, but I never had the idea to actually put it between the boxes for box bounding. But that makes such perfect sense because then it's right where you need it. Like that actually would work really well. That's a great idea. Well, exactly. And then you can also you can show the athletes that if they want to go farther. You know, what does it take? Does it take a longer ground contact time, a shorter ground contact time? Do you have to roll from the from the foot flat position to the toe? And how do you do that? And, you know, how long a period does that take? You know, so anything to get them not to just absorb the impact of landing. Yeah, I think you had talked about, too, and maybe it's not quite the same context, but athletes who like to really try to will themselves to go farther. And it seems like a lot of times, especially short approach jumps and those things, people just spend more time on the ground. They they try harder and they swing their arms to a greater arc. But 
that doesn't transfer that full reactive strength. And that's where I think that contact time is so valuable. And, and, and I like that setup a lot. I think that's really innovative. And I'm sure a creative coach too, like having that in mind. I mean, now that I think about that, I'm like, wow, what else could I have used it on? That's, that's kind of a cool deal. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree. I mean, you have to be creative and you somehow have to get these people to exceed what their expectations are. You know, there's a theory in psychology that a lot of what limits us as human beings is inhibition. And if we can break down the inhibition of the individual, we can have a better performance than we've ever had. And th this is what attributes uh, the idea of the little old lady running out to lift the car off the kid in the middle of the street when she sees that event happen. And uh, how does she do that? You know, because she's never done it before. Obviously, all of her inhibitions just disappear, and she's able to marshal all the strength within her body. And so it gives us an idea that there is an outer limit out there that very few of us ever reach. And, uh, you know, we try to work on that, and we try to explain to the kids, this is how you facilitate your movements in order to get towards that point. Yeah, that was always the the awesome thing about plyometrics to me when I first started to learn about them in like the real Russian context about, shoot, what has it been now? About almost 20 years ago. And uh, it, it's like as soon as you start doing them, it's like this this ability is coming to you out of nowhere. Like you did had no idea you had it because it's like the subconscious reflexibility of your body to start, um, you know, disinhibiting your uh, uh, tendon organs and all those things. And uh, I mean, it's uh, it, yeah, it's uh, it's really amazing. Yeah, it's the thing that I love most about working with young athletes and young kids because you can see that breakthrough occur. And when it happens, it's a it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, uh, so we talked a little bit, so talking then about, uh, we're talking about bounding and contact times and all this, uh, but could you, uh, and also I'd like to hear your take on how you started to integrate the vertical plyometrics. Did, um, I mean, depth jumps and hurdle hops and all these things. Uh, how did you uh, start to integrate that into your training program? Well, basically, they were all part and parcel of, of the categorization of plyometric exercise that I was working on. And so, I, you know, I, my whole thing was, okay, where do these exercises come into play? And obviously, uh, the skill you develop when you do those exercises is vertical velocity. And the one thing about vertical velocity, the, the person who has the most vertical velocity usually jumps the highest. And that applies to volleyball, basketball, or any other sports. So the idea is, how do we improve vertical velocity? And if you watch these uh, kids that in the high jump today, one of the things I do uh, and did with my jumpers is I would time their approaches. And I wanted to know how fast they were running and could we get them going faster. You look at guys like uh, Vasile, not uh, 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 the high jumper, Valerie Brumel. When, you know, he would have something like a nine meters per second uh, approach speed or something, something phenomenal that you most human beings wouldn't even be able to get off the ground with. But yet he was able to convert that. Well, you know, how do you get to that point? Obviously, that was the thing that differentiated him, made him the greatest uh, straddler in the history of the sport. So the idea was that was something that was a desirable trait. And it made sense uh, that that's what we should be working for. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. I think that 
I like the idea, as you mentioned, with contact times, just the idea of using not only height and like the big obvious thing as, as the measure of your plyometric success, but ground contact. And then the other time measurement of, yeah, total approach time. I, I think it's becoming easier now, at least for the horizontal jumps with like that you can stick the timing gates at the end of your last oh, fight. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 No about that. Uh, I was going to say too, actually, I, sorry, I forgot to ask this, but it switched. What, what did the switch mats look like back, back then when you were using that? I mean, who, who made them? They must've been pretty expensive. I'd imagine. I, it seems you like, know, they, yeah, they weren't the cheapest things in the world. And I, I, Al Vermeil and I were actually doing some work together. And Al of course went on to be the head strength coach for the Chicago bulls during their fabulous run. But Al would get these strength mats through various providers and we would use them. And they were about 12, maybe 18 by 24 in size. And then we, were, we had them wired to a switch box that uh, would give us the recorded times. We, we did a lot of independent work and we employed a couple of Silicon Valley guys to help us fulfill our desires for these, these toys. Yeah, that's one of the beauty of uh, beauties of living in the Bay Area. <laughs> you got a lot of uh, cool resources at your fingertips. This is true. Yeah, I uh, I was actually saying I'm like I'm very disappointed in the just jump people. They I when I had their contact mat like 10 years ago, they had a plyo time. But then when I got to my current university job, the ones <laughs> we, they stopped doing like they didn't have that option on it anymore. I was like, I guess that told me. Does anybody actually use that? And if they don't, that's really sad. Like that they stopped using the the single response contact time because that was such yeah. a beneficial piece. And um, yeah. Anyways, I, I think uh, I saw I, one of our mutual contacts too. I think Max uh, Schmarzo was involved in like a little like a double little switch mat that's that's gonna be pretty inexpensive. I'm I'm excited to see hopefully what that can do. So uh, it's always good to be able to put those other numbers, the time context numbers on plyometrics. I think yeah, people miss out on that a lot. Oh, yeah, because it not only gives you guidelines, but it really sets standards. And, uh, you know, it, there's nothing more motivating for an athlete than to see their individual improvement. And so when they get a chance to, to do that, then they really realize that, oh, this is a valuable tool for me. Yeah, yeah, especially, too. And I've I've been starting to experiment with this a little bit, like on my iPad, but a high jumper uh, trying to, to – count frames of a uh, takeoff times and and trying to say hey you know to be a good high jumper you should be probably about here and you're a few hundredths above that and i just feel like that's uh it's probably a little bit more archaic uh than a, having an actual map but it's uh it's been interesting and good i feel like it's been great feedback with that regard sure sure absolutely and you know the tail end of that approach they have to catch their center of gravity on the rise and they want to be moving faster than they are in the mid body of their approach so this is, again, something that goes to teaching technique and just the concept of drilling that into their heads and getting them to have that feel for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. And um, so you've been you've been through this industry a long time. You had mentioned some of the – you my Al Vermeil, one of the pioneers, uh, a colleague of yours, and, and you've been through a lot of steps and changes uh, in the track and field and sports performance community. So you had mentioned um, – you had mentioned that like the Americans were really behind on the, the plyometric thing when you first were exposed to it. So uh, what are some big, what are some big steps that you've seen like the track and field community or, or sports performance as a whole kind of go through uh, over the last, um, you know, well, I guess you could say probably three decades or so, but uh, what, uh, what are some big things you've seen? 
Well, you know, the, the biggest thing from my perspective is really the uh, adaptation of plyometric training by coaches because, you know, the term plyometrics is an American term. It's not a European term. They simply called it jump training. And so when we started to apply this category of exercises known as plyometric training, I'll be willing to say that 90% of the track coaches in America went, aha, that's what I've been doing. And so it, it served as a, as a real affirmation for you know, their work and their ideas on how to make athletes more explosive and faster. And so I think this is, is really what uh, sort of fueled that whole move. And then, of course, the, the next thing is if, you, if it works for track and field, will it work for football? Will it work for volleyball? Will it work for basketball? And everybody started to look at that, and then everybody said, "Oh yeah, there is a, there is a, a carryover to this." Let me give you another story. I worked uh, this last summer with Darius Hayward Bay, the ex-Oakland Raider receiver, who's now with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And Darius came to see me in the summer, uh, recovering from a double sports hernia surgery, and uh, I was kind of like, "Whoa, I, I'm not sure of what we're going to be able to do here." But it was amazing because he adapted very well. And then we went out and we started, uh, we got him through the strengthening phase and he was doing real well. And then I asked him, I said, well, let's go out and run and see what you can do. So we started running. And then I asked him, I said, Darius, have you ever done any bounding? Have you ever tried any plyometric work? No. Here's a guy that's been in the NFL for 10 years and he's never done a plyometric exercise to save his life. And it's like, you know, I know you're 30, but here's an area where we might be able to have some success. So we started working on that, and by the time it was over, he was doing, you know, 60 yards of alternate bounding, 30 yards of single leg bounding, and he's doing repeats of those and everything. And I even had him starting his sprints like he was bounding, so almost like a high jump start and uh, uh, an approach start. So he was doing that bounding. And I asked him, I said, well, what do you feel uh, now that we've been through all this? And he says, you know, I have to admit, I feel more explosive. And he's still with the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's still got a job and, you know, he's doing well. So we'll see how it all turns out. Yeah, bounding, uh, it, it is interesting to see how that integrates itself into pro sports. I, or even on the college level, I mean, you, don't always, you don't always see that in the, or, or I should say it, it's not necessarily common to see that stuff in the preparation of those athletes. But I've seen uh, yeah. like Auburn football has got a really uh, integrated system. I've seen those guys even doing left, left, right, right stuff. Like, you know, yeah. there's a strong yeah. track influence going on there. But it's actually, it's amazing how good those guys are at it. I think a lot of people would see a, 230 pound you know 6'3 football player and think no you know no way but these guys are good like I was really impressed so it was uh it's always interesting to see that power output yeah we'd love to peel 40 pounds off of and put him on the runway (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah that is the case with so many track slash football players these days they uh they end up being a little uh a little on the mass side of things (laughs) it's uh So, uh, well, you talked a little bit, I'd like to actually bring it back just a little bit. You had talked about, um, strength, you know, the, the strong strength influence from the Russian side of things. Um, 
when you get an athlete or, or with your track athletes, what's your idea on the balance of strength training and plyometrics? So are you a, or were you more of a strength first kind of person and then we'll integrate plyometrics in as you hit these strength check marks or you would, did you do like lower level plyometrics or would you do that type of thing at the beginning? Um, uh, how do you uh, integrate and balance those two animals? Well, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to have standards and you've got to have expectations. Uh, so I usually do an assessment of the athlete to see where they're at, and uh, we judge their strength from there. I have a, a young volleyball player, female now, who's six feet three, and she's going to get a scholarship whether she wants one or not. You know, and she's hit, plus she's hitting at the ten foot line. And so this is a young lady. When she started with us, uh, she couldn't, she could barely handle her body weight. So the idea is, okay, this woman can handle her body weight, not much more. How much are we going to do in plyometric training? We're probably not going to do more than uh, 20 or 30 foot counts at the most uh, foot contacts in, in a plyometric session. And they're all going to be low-level plyometrics. So a lot of it is footwork related. A lot of it is movement related and the idea of working changing direction, these kinds of things, trying to teach how to be reactive on the court so that you're a little more valuable than a doorstop. <laughs> and so the idea is, you know, to get those kids to use their body weight and to learn how to anticipate uh, movement because that's, that's one of the key things. I get that from a lot of tennis players about developing their first step and making them quicker on the first step. And I tell them, I just, you know, it's not about me making you stronger because I can do that, but that's not going to help your first step. What's going to help your first step is if you can anticipate what it is that you want to do. Then your body gets ready for that. It's prepared to do that, and it does it at a much higher rate. So the idea is getting kids, you know, in, in that line of thinking. And when they do that, then good things happen, and they start to see that. And, and it also serves as a self-motivation. Yeah. Uh, well, that's interesting. I like, uh, it reminds me a little bit about what uh, uh, another podcast guest I had, Lee Taft, uh, speed expert, who had said oh, like, yeah, yeah like, like it's that anticip anticipatory speed that is so important, even probably more so in, in like tennis or a, a, a reactionary sport than even just being able to do a fixed point eight point a to be a point a to point b test very quickly sure sure no i know exactly what you're talking about and that's exactly what i'm trying to emphasize is that you know that's probably going to be the key to that initiation of speed yeah so with uh in terms of uh strength training though and like bringing young athletes up uh so you're basically looking at like a, a low low volume plyometrics in in appropriate in a appropriate context and then getting them stronger over the years absolutely uh you know one of the things i did and i t i've told people this forever uh i wrote down every workout i did with my kids <clears throat> for five years <clears throat> and it wasn't until after five years that i felt like i really had a handle on what it would take to bring a youngster in as a freshman and have them leave our program as an All-American. And so it's just that kind of work along the way that allows you to integrate, measure, and expect what is going to happen to a young person 
as they work through the program. Yeah, what were some important benchmarks in your in your track and field program? Like, what were some important things you wanted an athlete to be able to accomplish in training that allowed that were like as they went through their four years that you knew that was going to help them to be successful or to be like an all American in, in the jumps? I had standards. I had things that we had to be able to do. Uh, one of the things that I, I used to love to do was you had to be able to complete a workout that included 500 yards of alternate bounding and broken up into 100 yard segments. So you had to bound for 100 yards, alternate, uh, alternately working right, left, right, left, or left, right, left, right. But you had to get through that. You had to get through it with uh, not only in uh, being able to complete the, the repetitions and the distances, but to do it with good technique. So we'd video the workout, then we'd go back, show it to the athlete, and we'd say, okay, look here at four. Four, you're no longer lifting your, your thigh. You're not driving the leg. You stop pushing off the ground. You're basically just kind of bouncing along, okay? This is a, a failure in your strength system to allow you to complete that. So you don't have enough strength to do it. So those kinds of things, I think, are really important in the development of the athlete. Yeah, something that's always fascinated me is those plyometric volumes. Um, like in terms of, uh, especially in terms of bounding, just because I think that there's there's so many similarities uh, with the with the bounding and all the plyometrics too. What do you think? What's your take? And I've been thinking a lot about this lately. But your take on um, like 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 you had said too with the the high volume lunges and the high volume bounding. What's your take on that in the development of like the fascial and connective system system of a jumper? Oh, I have no doubt that it's it's. Uh contributory to the overall strength of the fascial tissues, uh, the ligaments, uh, the tendons. And I think that it's a preventative situation as well as a performance related situation. Yeah, it's always amazed me. And I watch like I watch like athletes like uh, Stefan Holm and high jump. And I think how, how developed that guy's fascial system must be. Uh, you see some yeah. of the plyometrics he does. I'm sure he's been doing for years. So it's uh, it's really quite amazing. Well, it was really interesting because Derek Hansen from Canada, who's a pretty good strength and conditioning coach and speed coach, uh, sent me a video recently of the uh, of uh, the tight end from the Chicago Bears who blew his knee out in this last game. And it was kind of interesting because he said, what do you think contributed to this this particular event? And I looked at it and uh, Zach Miller was the tight end, an ex-Oakland Raider who caught the ball and looked like he was putting his foot down to the ground but wasn't aware of where the ground actually was. So it was like, I liken it to missing a step, going down the stairs and all of a sudden not feeling where the ground is, and then you land with your leg extended so abruptly that it actually creates so much shear stress that you damage the joint. And I, I've seen it happen before in other instances, and I think that's what happened in his particular case. That really turned out to be a tragic injury because he ruptured the popliteal artery, and they they had a real battle. I, I think they're having success with it now, but they had a real struggle to save the leg. Oh, man. That you sounds know, brutal. Kind of injury where he could have actually lost the lower leg. Wow. So. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Uh, I, a question I had for you, another one, was uh, 
and you having experience with all types of athletes was single versus double leg jumping. So how might you train an athlete differently who's going to be a one leg jumper versus someone who's um, a, a more of a two leg jumper, like a volleyball player in terms of strength and uh, the plyometrics that you're looking at? Well, let me give you another little thought on my, my behalf is that uh, I've reviewed videotape of Derek Rose's injury uh, some other people, uh, Sean Miller's, uh, Paul George's, uh, you know, all these guys who've had really gruesome knee injuries. And the problem is in a lot of those instances, they were basketball players who went vertical and landed on a single leg. So my advice to a basketball player would always be land on two legs. Don't try to land on one. And, you know, they get themselves into such contorted positions and they get all twisted up and everything else. But I, I guarantee you that you have a lot fewer knee injuries when you land on two legs as opposed to one leg. So that's not really a training thing, but it's it's more of a technique thing. But uh, that's just my thought on that. Now, I train athletes to work single leg a lot. And we do... Uh, we do Bulgarian single leg squats. We do Bulgarian single leg jumps. Uh, we do a lot of stuff where we're trying to get them to react to the ground, to, to commit to a movement in the air, and then to land on the leg again. And all that happens in a very short period of time. So again, the idea is, do I commit to the activity? Do, do I anticipate what it is I have to do? And can I execute the movement? And if you can do those kinds of things, then I think you're going to be effective when you get out on the field or the track or the runway. And so those are important things that I think all make sense for me. Sure. Uh, so you would, uh, for track athletes, you would be more, I mean, you obviously they're going to be doing a lot higher volumes of bounding than, than a football or a, a basketball sure. player. Uh, but would you, is, is there any other like sp plyometrics that are specific to the double or single leg jumpers that you tended to put more in uh, or, or specialize with? Well, with the uh, high jumpers, we tended to do more single leg bleacher jumps where we'd have them jump two steps at a time going up on a single leg. And in our particular bleachers, we were able to get 25 consecutive jumps in. And we had the, the potential to go if we went up another level to go 50 jumps in a very short period of time. Uh, but we didn't do that very often. Uh, and the idea is that, you know, one of the, one of the great tests that the Russians used to use to identify sprinters was a 25 meter single leg hop for time. And so I would use that test and that exercise as a real standard when I wanted to emphasize single leg activities. So we would spend a long time uh, working, training, testing athletes off a single leg. And we do both the dominant and the non-dominant leg, not just the dominant leg like the test recalled for. So the idea was let's find out what the differences are between sides so that, we, again, I believe an athlete should be balanced. If you're balanced, I think you have a much better chance to be successful regardless of sport. Yeah, I really, I've, I've heard of that uh, that that single leg test before and I'd, I'd done it myself. I always felt like that was, especially it's like another context of time too, putting time on a, a movement that oh, people don't often do. Absolutely. You know, and it's, it's really funny. 
because I one of the drills that I did is sort of when we got to the championship season, I would do uh, maybe a 60-yard bound against the clock. And so I would time the kids for 60 yards. Now, you want to see some kids flatten their bounds out, and you want to see some more rapid leg movements? Boy, I'll tell you what, it came out <laughs> when, the, when they had to do that particular test. And people don't worry about putting that vertical component in as much as they worry about pushing off and getting that linear component going. And that's what I would use to emphasize that, because at the tail end of the year, most of what we were trying to improve was really that linear speed. Yeah, uh, that's that's I like, yeah, it's interesting putting that single leg into that context too, because an athlete's not going to go very high; they're going to go horizontal. But that's probably a great way to get a good strong push out the back with you doing that single leg for horizontal and really driving out. Absolutely, and you know, you take baseball players who are generally, uh, and I say this with qualifications, of course, but the, you know, they aren't particularly gifted athletes because they don't practice the same skills. So when they get into bounding situations, they don't execute as well for the most part. And so uh, it's really interesting to take a pitcher, though, and to teach a pitcher how to execute a single leg bound. And once you get them better at a single leg bound, watch what happens to their pushing off the mound when they throw. And I find a direct transfer and I find a direct carryover. And, uh, you know, I have a young man that I'm working with now who's touching 88 on his last uh, showcase. And the idea is that he's been told by a couple of college coaches that, that for a scholarship, he needs to hit 90. So we've been really emphasizing his leg actions and his leg uh, plyometric activities lately. And I really feel that he will touch 90 before he gets through well well before he gets through his senior senior year which is coming up but he will also get to it in the, one of these fall showcases yeah that's a, that's an interesting point actually as soon as you mentioned that i was thinking yeah that push off the mound and how often do players actually think to overload that i mean it's and it's a horizontal thing too so it's hard to touch in the weight room like the way you would want it as well it makes a lot of sense absolutely absolutely and it's not about getting up in the air it's about getting across the ground and, and it's that concept that when kids start to realize that there are vertical and linear components to everything they do, they start to learn that they can differentiate between the two. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's really a, a fascinating area, and I think that's, it would help a lot of, a lot of athletes out. I, uh, I have another question for you here on um, just on like uh, forgotten, like I would call it forgotten strength exercises. So some strength exercises that you've, utilized down the line that you thought were great for developing your athletes, but you just don't see around that much anymore. Maybe they've fallen out of style or maybe it's just not the common strength conditioning trend, but is there anything in that arena that uh, you found useful? Yeah, I think that uh, the hip extension, the hip extension machines that are out there, some of those are, they're not a real common thing found in every gym these days, but I think the hip extension machine where you get down in that kind of inclined position and you're pushing backwards and extending really hard with the hip and the knee, uh, I think those are valuable tools. And I think those can go a long way towards developing that posterior chain strength that's so necessary for sprinting, jumping activities. Uh, and then I, I actually sort of, uh, you know, I like the glute ham machine, but I found another exercise 
uh, called the Razor Curl, and it comes from Australian football. And uh, it's an activity on, I can't, it's hard to explain, but you, you're on the, uh, the uh, glute ham machine, you kind of kneel on that front, uh, front uh, pad, and then you extend out like you're diving, and then you go down, touch the ground, and you pull yourself back up using your hip and hamstring muscles. And it's, it's very much akin to the uh, Norwegian or Russian hamstring curl when you're on the ground, got the hands behind the back and that sort of thing, which I also think is, you know, we don't have very many Americans who can do that exercise. And uh, one year I saw two Russian junior triple jumpers, kids under 19 years of age, that banged out sets of 10 like Ooh. they were nothing. And I just was dumbfounded because, again, I have struggled to get kids in our country to be able to do one or two of those. Oh, yeah. And kids were doing sets of 10. And it was just absolutely phenomenal. Both of them were 57-foot triple jumpers. Yeah, that's yeah, that's awesome. I um, like That makes me think, too, in my experiences as a track and field strength coach, just like the great – the fast athletes, like the really good athletes, they may or may not have been they, you know, great in the squat rack. I mean, they're usually good, but the thing that stood out was their ability to do Nordic hamstrings and those types of razor curl movements with good yeah. strength. And I mean, it is almost like an American thing. We think about the squats and the cleans, and yes, that's important, but no one, the hamstrings are more of an afterthought. I feel like in our in our sports training culture, like you don't hear as many articles on those and see as much material as you do some of the other movements. Well, you know, one of the strange things is I, I work a lot and see a lot of kids with patellar femoral syndrome where they have kneecap pain and all this stu- sort of stuff. I rehab those by strictly working the posterior chain, hamstring curls, uh, glute ham machine, uh, hip extension stuff, uh, you know, all of that type of stuff, running backwards, those kinds of activities. Uh, as opposed to trying to work something to strengthen the quads or, you know, the typical referral you get from the orthopedist says, you know, needs quad strengthening. No, they, I don't think that's really the issue. And we've had a lot of success in helping people alleviate their pain with that and then be able to go on and be successful in their sport. Yeah, I, I really like that. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm always. I've always been thinking about the hamstrings and a lot more lately, especially I've gone through some of the postural restoration, learning their role in breathing, and then just like I'm putting some EMG shorts and learning just how weak mine are. And it's uh, it's definitely a, a fascinating area, and I really like that anecdote, especially with the Russian triple jumpers and 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 yeah, elite athletes that got hamstrings. That's for sure. Yeah, no, it's it it is amazing, and uh, I think that. You know, certainly the biggest disservice we do to kids is we limit the scope of what they're doing to just a few exercises. And we don't think of all the accessory things that they need in order to enhance their performance. I mean, I wish I knew now then what I know now, you know, given 40 years of being in this business and the things I have learned in the meantime, uh, you know, would have helped me be a much better coach back in the 80s when I was really at my prime in terms of, of getting kids over the bar and, and out over the pit, you know. So uh, it, it is amazing. But it's an ongoing process. I think the key things are to maintain an open mind and be flexible and don't be afraid to make a mistake and and admit that you made one. <laughs> so Yeah, oh, yeah. 
<laughs> that, the idea is that I think the kids respond in a, in a very positive way when they get coached in this manner and they give you, uh, you know, give you the best efforts. Absolutely. Well, yeah, that's, yeah, I think that's great stuff. And yeah, being able to admit when you made a mistake is uh, so key, yeah. not seen as much as it should be that, that be able to admit. So, uh, but Hey, Dr. Don Chu, uh, it's about the end of uh, the time I got for the podcast today, but uh, man, just so great. I love hearing things and anecdotes from, from training out of the eighties and nineties and these integrations. And I think that uh, so much like slips, a lot of slips through the cracks, you know, as, as coaches go oh, through the generations. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> You know, and, and some of the greatest learning experiences I've ever had is sitting down with a group, a small group of coaches and over a beer or whatever and just chit-chatting. And the stuff you pick up and the stuff you learn is just absolutely amazing. Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, well, thank you again, Dr. Chu. I really appreciate your time. Oh, you bet. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in for another episode. We appreciate your listenership, and it was just great to have a guest like Dr. Chu on with such uh, great experience over the decades in this thing we call plyometrics and, of course, sports performance. I think we can all come away from that episode just continuing, if you didn't before, to have that reverence for the factor uh, and frame of speed on whatever exercise you're doing, as well as the idea of ground contact time plyometrics. And I certainly hope that uh, the ability to have switch mats uh, that can accommodate that become more common. Uh, so speaking of the technology, our sponsor is simplyfaster.com, an amazing place to go for any of your high-tech sports performance needs. They have anything from timing system to force plates to contact grids, which that is, in my opinion, is certainly the future of assessing and analyzing sprint training, especially if you don't have um, $60,000 in your pocket for really, really high-tech stuff. Uh, so they got just an amazing array of things uh, in their store. You're going to get it cheaper if you're here in the United States. And they also are putting their awesome work on their blog. So check them out. We'll be back uh, next week with another great guest. Until then, have a good one.